if you would this morning, grab your Bible and open your Bible up to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. So we're in a series on the attributes of God, and we are working through these different attributes, one after another after another, and in Isaiah chapter 6, in this great text, we see more of the Lord, and so Turn to Isaiah chapter 6 and hear the word of our, our good God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are indeed glorious. You are high and you are lifted up and all praise is due your name for you are excellent. You are excellent. Splendor and glory is before you. Light and beauty, that is your presence. And it is our joy to hear of you and to open up your book and to see you. And we pray now as we look into Isaiah 6 that you would show forth your holiness, that we might see and that we might be changed by what we see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes you see something and what you see changes you. Whatever it is that something you see leaves as a result of its peculiarness or whatever it might be, an indelible mark upon you. you. You can't forget it. You can't ignore it. Wherever you go, whatever you saw goes along with you. Whatever you think about, that thing that you saw is it exerting its influence on you. And as we think about Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw something that changed him. What he saw in this chapter changed his occupation. Because of the scene of what he saw, he was called to be a prophet of the Lord, delivering God's word to God's people. What Isaiah saw changed his view of his very self. There was a deepening of self-understanding in Isaiah chapter 6, and he knew himself as he never knew himself before. And ultimately, what Isaiah saw in chapter 6 changed his understanding of the Lord. What he saw in that chapter changed his theological imagination forever, and whatever he would go on to say about the Lord would be influenced by what he saw in chapter 6. And so what did Isaiah see? Well, we read the text. We know what he saw. He saw the Lord. Look at verse 1. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
First one is such a simple and short sentence, but its significance cannot be lost upon us. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And think about it. Only a handful of men in Holy Scripture can say something like Isaiah says here. You think of Moses and the burning bush. You think of Abraham and Jacob. You think of John and his apocalyptic revelation. But as you survey your Bible, you're not going to find many more names besides the ones I listed to you. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And so we ask Isaiah, well, what did you see of the Lord? Tell us about this vision you had. And Isaiah's words deserve our careful attention, for here in this chapter, we find one of the most important descriptions of God in Holy Scripture. And so Isaiah tells us what he saw. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. What does that mean? It means this, the Lord is the king. He is the the sovereign ruler over everything. And the Lord does what kings do. And what do kings do? They sit on a throne as a sign of their rulership. And as we consider this scene of the Lord sitting on his throne, it is very clear that the Lord is different than every other king who sits on the throne. Some kings decorate their thrones elaborately. You think of King Solomon in 1 Kings. His throne was elaborate. It was made of ivory and then it was overlaid with gold and there was a a series of steps leading up to it and there was lions carved into the midst of it. It was a glorious throne. 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 20 says this, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. It was glorious. And what does it speak of? It speaks of the king's glory. But the Lord's throne outstrips and outglories even Solomon's throne because the Lord's throne, Isaiah tells us, is high and lifted up. This king is exalted above every other king in his rulership over all things. In fact, the Lord is so exalted, he's so transcendent that Isaiah's vision is maxed out as he tries to look upon and understand who the Lord is. As he looks upon the Lord in his throne room in the temple, all he can see is the train of the Lord's robe. Just think about it. Just the the hem of God's kingly garments fill up the temple and that is all that Isaiah can see. What Isaiah wants us to know is how great the Lord is. His immensity, his infinite plenitude cannot be fathomed or explained or contained. Yahweh is big. Imaginably, unimaginably big. And Isaiah keeps going on, furthering our awe, there are ones who attend to this great king who is seated upon the throne. And Isaiah calls these ones who attend to the Lord seraphs. They are unique creatures and they fly about in the presence of the Lord and they have six wings each. And we scratch our heads. What what are these creatures? Well, seraph isn't a a technical name. It is a, a descriptive name. It means something like a burning one. And so who is the Lord surrounded by and worshiped by and served by? He is surrounded by ones who are on fire burning in the presence of the Lord. And as we gaze upon these creatures, we learn so much about our God. These creatures, what do they do as they fly? They, they cover their eyes with their wings. This Lord is so pure and so holy and great and excellent that even these perfect creatures who have never tasted sin or known sin cover their eyes because they cannot look upon the Lord. And then two other of their wings, they cover their feet, telling us that no immodesty, not even their feet, will appear before this great 
God. And so what do these creatures do? Well, they fly about in the Lord's presence and they do one particular thing we see here. They praise the Lord. And as they announce their praise one to another in this antiphonal praise, we begin to learn what this God is. They're interpreting this vision to us in their songs. They say, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just camp on those words for a moment. Holy, holy, holy. One holy is not sufficient. Two holies are not enough to describe the Lord. The Lord is thrice holy. He is holy to the extreme. When these these angelic beings speak of the Lord, they're using superlatives. And they're teaching us one simple point with their praise. No one is holy like the Lord. And they keep on singing, so great is God's holiness that the excellency of his holiness and the renown of his great name and being goes out to the ends of the earth. Better said, it saturates all of created created reality. These, These angelic beings sing, the whole earth is full of his glory. So excellent is God's name that his name saturates all of created reality. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so what did Isaiah see? Well, he saw the holy God. And as Isaiah starts his long prophetic book, this is what he wants us to see and understand, that God is holy. And so there's our sentence for this morning. God is a holy God. Now, as we think about this doctrine that Isaiah opens our eyes up to, this is a doctrine that the Bible loves to showcase. From beginning to end, the Bible sets before us as readers the holiness of God. The Bible celebrates this doctrine, telling us that God is holy, and this is something we should sing about. You think about Exodus chapter 15, and Israel is on the edge of the sea, and Moses is leading God's people in song, and they sing this about the Lord. They say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The Bible loves to talk about God's holiness, and the Bible calls us to know God in his holiness and then to imitate God in his holiness. Leviticus 19, verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the Bible proclaims God's holiness to us. It shouts it to us. It preaches to us that God is holy. And it does so because this is God's very name. He is revealed in Scripture as the the Holy One of Israel. And the Bible tells us even more that this holy God is to be desired and sought after. For this reason, Jesus taught us to pray. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? What did Jesus pray? Hallowed be your name. What do we want above all? We want God's holiness to be seen and known, loved, and cherished. And we could say so much more about God's holiness. The Bible talks about fear and reverence. It talks about hope and love. But here we need to pause and we need to ask the simple question. What does it mean for God to be holy? The Bible's proclaiming it to us, but what does it mean for this God to be holy? And here's the interesting thing as we try to answer this question. Wherever you encounter this doctrine in the Bible, it is almost always accompanied with a peculiar brightness. Just think about it. When men or angels encounter the holy God, what do they do? They cover their faces. 
or you think of other scenes, they fall flat on their faces, sticking their faces in the dirt because of the brightness of the glory of the Lord. It is such an intense brightness that no man, no creature, no angel can directly look upon his holiness. It is a brightness that shines brighter than the sun at high noon. There's a peculiar brightness to the Lord's holiness. Psalm 96 verse 6 tells us this, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Psalm 50 verse 2 says this about the Lord, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Paul talks about this as well as he talks about the glory of the Lord and his holiness. He says, 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light. So what does all of this brightness mean? We see God in his holiness in scripture and his holiness is always accompanied by a, a peculiar brightness. Well, for paying attention, this brightness gets us on the right track. Holiness, as all of this brightness shows, is about the excellence of God's being. In particular, it's about the excellence of his moral character. So great, so perfect, so pure is God's moral, moral character that his holiness shines forth in spectacular wonder and glory. Now that's a start as we try to understand God's holiness, but there is so much more that needs to be said. God is holy, and so we need to speak about his holiness and his excellence. And so what I want to do is give you some help this morning in thinking about God's holiness. And to study God's holiness, I want to conceptualize our study of God's holiness as a journey to the holy of holies. And so you can imagine yourself as an ancient Israelite and you are going to make pilgrimage to the temple to the holy of holies. And so on this journey, we're going to need to go to Jerusalem. We're going to need to pass through the city. We're going to need to come to the temple and pass through the various chambers and courts. And finally, at the end of the journey, we will come to the Holy of Holies itself. So we can think of ourselves as pilgrims traveling to the very center of God's holiness. And as we do this, we're going to make four stops, and I, I hope that these four stops will be a help to you as you try to understand what it means for God to be Holy. And so let's start our journey with this first stop. And the first stop is this. What does it mean for God to be holy? It means a repugnancy of sin. So repugnant, that's a word that we often, often hardly ever use. And we don't use that word for good reason. Why? It's a powerful word. How can I help you understand it? Well, here's an illustration. Imagine coming home after a long holiday, perhaps you were gone from your house for, for two weeks, and you open the door after a long holiday, and a smell meets you right when you open the door, and you take the first step in. And why is there a smell in your house? Well, there's a smell in your house because you realize you forgot to take out the garbage. So for weeks, your garbage was composting in your house, and all sorts of unique smells were being diffused from the rotting garbage in your home. And if you have little kids... You make the sad discovery that there's a few diapers in the midst of that garbage. Human feces were being diffused throughout your home and their unique smell. Now, you open up that door, you take a step in. What do you smell when you open up the door? You get this stench in your nostrils. And so you travel through your home and you go where the garbage is and what happens? That stench gets stronger and stronger and you react to that stench. What do you do? Just naturally, you, you hold your breath, you, you plug your nose. 
What's happening? Well, here's the word. That garbage, that stench is repugnant to you. And here's the truth about God and his holiness. Sin is repugnant to God. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 through 6 speaks of God's holiness like this. The psalmist says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The psalmist is using very strong words. We hear the word hate. We hear the word abhor. We hear the word destroy. And as you think about Psalm 5 and its message, it doesn't create any warm fuzzies in us as readers. In fact, if you go and meditate on Psalm 5, it might make you a bit uneasy and you might start to squirm and you might ask, does God really abhor sin? Does God really hate the man who works evil with his hands? And we think to ourselves, well, maybe we should make a few modifications here. Maybe we should make this doctrine of holiness a bit more family-friendly and, and politically correct. But here's the truth, we can't. God is holy, and because he is holy, he really does abhor sin. It is repugnant to his very being and moral excellence. You might ask, well, where is more proof of this? We've got Psalm 5, that is good proof, but you might be asking, I want to see more of this. What does it mean for sin to be repugnant unto the Lord? And here is the greatest proof of this doctrine. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. When we look upon the one who knew no sin but who became sin for us, when we look at the one who died a cursed death on the tree, when we see the one stricken and smitten by God, we see just how repugnant sin is to the Lord, how much he hates it. Stephen Sharnock, a Puritan, writes of this with moving words and he helps us see how much God hates sin. Listen to what he writes. He says this, not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against devils, nor the groan of all damned creatures, give us such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his son. What is Sharnox telling us? He's saying, you want to see God's hatred of sin? Go to the cross of Jesus Christ. There you shall see it in its purest form. God hates sin as he smites his son. And Sharnock goes on, he writes, he says, God seems to lay aside the bowels of a father and he puts on the garb of an irreconcilable enemy. For God chose to suspend the breakings out of his affections to his son and to see him plunged in sharp and miserable misery rather than see his holiness lie groaning under the injuries of a transgressing world. What do we see at the cross? We see the repugnancy of sin and the lengths that God will go to because he hates it so much. Sharnock is a help there. Nothing gives us such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his son. So that's our first stop. We can keep traveling, and as we travel, we have to make a second stop and see something else of the holiness of the Lord. And the second stop is this, a separation from all sin. So we can do a bit of reasoning here. If, if sin is repugnant to God, 
we can then reason that God will then separate himself from all sin. And this should make sense. If sin is inherently disagreeable to the Lord in his moral excellence, he is then going to take steps to, to keep sin away from his moral excellence. Psalm 24 helps us understand what this means. The, the psalmist here asks questions, and I'll read them to you. He asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those are great questions to ask. The psalmist is essentially asking, who's, who can commune with the Lord? Who can be in his presence and enjoy communion with him? And the psalmist gives us an answer. He, he says this in response to his own question. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, and so what is his answer? Well, he's telling us the one who is to dwell with God must be separated from the life of sin. And he points to some different specifics to help us think about this. He points to his hands. If you want to dwell with the Lord, your hands have to be scrubbed free from, from the stain of sin, nothing left on them. He, he points to the, the heart. Your heart must be void of all impurities and competing allegiances. He points to the soul. It must be set upon that which is good and true and beautiful. He points to his mouth. The mouth must not speak lies or deception, but must speak holy and true things. We can do some reasoning here. Looking at Psalm 24, if that is the description of the man who is to go and dwell with God, be with him, join to him in worship, how much more so God himself in his own nature. What's the point here? The point is this. There is an infinite chasm between God's perfect nature and sin. Or to put it like this, as Habakkuk 1.13 puts it, his eyes are too pure to look upon sin. Or as Hebrews 7.26 puts it, God in his perfect nature is innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. If we want to understand God's holiness, we must understand that there is an infinite chasm between his holy and excellent nature and all that lacks holiness and excellence. And so we've made our first two stops. The repugnancy of sin, and as a result of that, a separation from sin. And as we think about it, these first two stops, they've gotten us to the gates of the temple. And now we need to go inside. We need to draw closer to God's holiness. As we think about our first two stops, we've got the repugnancy of sin. We've got the separation from sin. Those are largely negative statements. We're saying what holiness isn't. Now, if we're to go forward, we must say something positive about God's holiness. And so our third stop is this. God's holiness is his perfect possession of his own perfect purity. God's holiness is the perfect possession of his own perfect purity. Holiness, in other words, is a word that attempts to describe God's self-excellent life, God's self-excellent nature. Now, as we try to grab hold of that definition I gave you, this is something that's really hard for us as humans to understand. Why? Because we do not possess a self-excellent life, and we have no idea what it means to possess a self-excellent life. Just think about it. Your purity is always a work of progress. You don't possess perfect purity. 
There's always something more to wash off. There's always something to cleanse yourself from. And then there's always this danger of getting dirty again. Don't you feel it in your life? You're living your Christian life and, and you feel like this, you're in this precarious position that you might dirty yourself again with sin. And maybe that's happened to you this week. You, you've been living this holy life and pff, off to the side in the mud. But here's the thing about the Lord. He possesses perfect purity meaning that the degree of his holiness never changes. The intensity of his purity never wavers. He is the thrice holy God. The angels sing of him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Perfect purity in himself. And this is what makes God so desirable and excellent. Why is God so excellent? Because he has perfect purity, because he is holy. Now I want you to see this. Because this should, this should enlarge our hearts for the Lord. I want you to see this. So do a thought experiment with me for a moment. Let's ask ourselves a hypothetical question. What if God lacked holiness, and in lacking holiness, he retained all other attributes of his deity? This is impossible. Let's just do the thought experiment for a moment. If God lacked holiness, but he had everything else, what would that mean? Well, listen to this. If God wasn't holy, his wisdom would just be cleverness. Without holiness, his justness would just be cruelty. Without holiness, his sovereignty would just be tyranny. Without holiness, his power would just be violence. Without holiness, his mercy would just be foolish pity and his grace would just be recklessness. Without holiness, his omniscience, his knowing of all things would just resemble that of a surveillance state. Without holiness, God would become the monster of our nightmares. He might have power, he might have wisdom, he might have omniscience and have all of these things without measure, but without holiness, he would be simply a terror to us, an unimaginable monstrosity looming before us. Holiness makes all of God, whether we consider him in his wisdom or his justice, whether we consider him in his power or his knowledge or his sovereignty, whether we consider him in his love or his mercy or his grace, the holiness of God makes all of God shine forth with perfect beauty. Holiness secures for us the goodness of God. And because of the absolute holiness of God, we can be sure of this. That God in his whole infinite being, every single inch, every cubic foot of his infinite being is excellent and praiseworthy and good and lovely. Holiness is the beauty of God. And so here we are exhorted in the light of his holiness to love his holiness, his self-excellency, his purity above everything else. Psalm 96 verses 6 through 9 calls to us telling us this. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So what? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Holiness is telling us that God is excellently beautiful. And so therefore we come and we worship him and glorify him. So that's our third stop. God possesses perfect purity. And this brings us to our fourth and last stop. And so here we are entering into the holy of holies. 
We've traveled, we've made it to Jerusalem, we've passed through the city, we've passed through the different chambers and rooms in the temple, and now we are going into the Holy of Holies. And as we enter into the sacred place, what should we see here? Well, we should notice this very simple thing. Everything is about God. Everything is about God. And this leads us to the burning heart of holiness. God is all about God. Why is God so holy? Answer, because he is completely devoted unto himself. And this is the essence of holiness. George Swinnock, a Puritan, summarizes the teaching of Scripture and he says this about holiness. Holiness in God is that excellence of the divine nature by which he acts from himself, for himself, and according to his own will. Petrus van Maastricht, an old Dutch, Dutch theologian, says this, writing on God's holiness, summarizing scripture. He says, God is devoted to himself, doing all things on account of himself, seeking in all things and above all things himself and his own glory and good pleasure. And what are these men telling us? God is devoted to himself. That is the very essence. That is the heart of his holiness. And you might be asking, well, where do we see this in the Bible? God's perfect devotion unto himself. There's so many places we can look. You can look to the prophet Isaiah because he, he brings this out page after page in his book. But I want to go somewhere else. I want to go to the life and ministry of our Lord. And I want to ask a few questions as we look at Jesus' ministry. So as we look at Jesus' ministry, we can ask, well, who is the Father devoted to? So think about Jesus' ministry. Who is the Father devoted to? Who is the Father taking action for? Well, we hear this in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. Do you remember the scene? Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. And the heavens break open and the Lord speaks. The Father says what? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. What is God's holiness? It is his pleasure in his Son. Or we can ask, who is Jesus devoted to? Who does Jesus take action for throughout the gospel stories? Well, the answer is this, for the Father. Remember Gethsemane. Those are some awful and holy moments before Jesus is to be tried and, and crucified. And what does Jesus pray? Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Yet not what I will but what you will. And, and John amplifies this elsewhere in his gospel. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 28. What is holiness? We see it in the life of Jesus. He prays as he goes to the cross. He says, but for this purpose, I have come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. What is holiness for Jesus? It is doing all things for the glory of his Father's name. He's laboring for it, devoted to it. So as we look at the triune God, we can say this about holiness. Holiness is the Father's devotion, whole and complete to both the Son and to the Spirit. We can add holiness is the Son's devotion, whole and complete to the Father and to the Spirit. Holiness is the Spirit's devotion, whole and complete both to the Father and to the Son. What is holiness? It is the devotion of the triune God unto himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, delighting in the divine nature in each other. This is the excellence of our God, a devotion eternal, infinite, full, pure, perfect, absolute in the triune God. 
a God of delight and love. And so those are our four stops. And let me just recount them to you. First of all, sin is repugnant to God. Second, God is separated from all sin. Third, God possesses perfect purity. And fourth, God is completely devoted unto his triune self. And what does all of that mean? It means this. God is holy. He is holy. And so now we can make our turn here towards application. We see what holiness means for God. But what does holiness mean for us? What does it mean for you this morning? You've been hearing all of this doctrine about God, but how does this connect? Well, we can go back to Isaiah's story and we can take our cue from Isaiah and what he saw of the Lord. So back with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're in this scene and Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees God's majesty and throne. He, he sees the hem of the Lord's, the Lord's garments filling up the temple. He sees the seraphim. The, the voices shake him and they shake everything in the temple. The thresholds are, are shaking. The angels are worshiping. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We've reflected on all of that and we've tease that out in our journey to the Holy of Holies. But after this, this great vision, as we look at the rest of the text, there's two quotations, two direct quotes. One quote comes from Isaiah's lips, and one quote comes from one of the seraphs that serve the Lord. And, and these quotes will serve us as our application. And so Isaiah sees all of this, and what he sees makes him say something. Isaiah says this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah is seeing God's holiness. He's seeing God's excellence, his perfect purity. And God's holiness does what? It brings out an immediate confession of sin. Isaiah says, woe is me. We can use a precise word here. Isaiah, because of what he saw, loathed himself. He loathed himself. And this is what God's holiness should do if we're actually seeing it for what it is. It should cause us to loathe ourselves. Now we need to speak with some specificity here. Let me say this. Isaiah did not loathe the color of his hair or the place of his birth or the quality of his education. What did he loathe? He loathed his sin. He was filled with a holy hatred at both what he had done with his hands in his life and what he had become in sin. He loathed himself. He hated himself for his sin and what he had become of in his sin. Woe is me. He's announcing curse upon himself. What we must see here is something very important. Loathing is a precious gift that God gives to his people. Isaiah is experiencing the grace and kindness of God here. This is not God's cruelty. This is God's mercy. Against the backdrop of God's perfect purity, the blackness, the vileness, the ugliness of our sin appears and it cannot be hidden. God's excellent life is his holiness and when we see his holiness, every impurity of our lives shows up and none of it can be ignored. And God gives us this gift of self-loathing. Why? Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And what does loathing do? 
And when it's at work in our souls, when we're seeing the holiness of God, it, it does a work in our souls where we begin to, to hate sin for what it is. And we do not only hate sin, but we, we confess it. We want to get rid of it. We tell the Lord, this is who I am, and, and this is what I've done. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God gives us this gift so that we might turn away from it. <laughs> Seeing it as something terrible. I do not want anything more to do with it. That our lives might be reformed. That repentance might take root. Self-loathing is a gift from God when it is a loathing of sin. And God gives it to his people. And so I ask you this morning, have you experienced this gift of God? Have you experienced something like Isaiah experienced? Have you seen your sin for something of what it truly is? Something ugly and vile, to use an old word that the Puritans love to use, something odious, something vile and black. Have you ever said something like what Isaiah said? Woe is me. Woe is me. This is essential to the Christian life. You must see God's, God in his holiness. And when you do, you begin to see yourself for who you truly are. If you've never seen God's holiness, and if you've never said anything like, woe is me, this is what you need to do. You need to plead with God that he would show you his holiness. Just a glimpse. So that's the first quote. We get a second quote. So Isaiah sees the Lord, and after he sees the Lord, a confession just comes out of his lips, woe is me. And then a seraph comes. So one of the, the angels who's worshiping the Lord, singing his praises, comes to Isaiah, and he, he comes to him having taken a, a live coal from the altar of God. And he says something to Isaiah, and he says this, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. This is a stunning move. I don't know about you, but I've read this chapter many times. But just think about it like this. Here is this seraph, and what was he just doing in a couple verses before? He was spending his days in eternity doing this, proclaiming God's holiness, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then what does this very seraph do who is just proclaiming God's holiness? He comes to this wretched sinner, to Isaiah, and he says this, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. The one who proclaims God's holiness is the one who comes and says, your sins are forgiven. All of them. And this is so profound. What, what does this mean? Well, it means that God's holiness does not just cause self-loathing, a hatred of sin, but God's holiness also brings forth salvation. And we see this in Isaiah's story so clearly. What does the holy God do? He will not let his people be destroyed by sin. He will not let them continue on their self-chosen path of destruction. But in and through and because of his holiness, he stoops low and he saves sinners. He sends one of the angels who was just praising him with a coal to cleanse this sinner, thus making him holy. And as we think about it, this whole scene in Isaiah chapter 6 prepares us for a greater vision, does it not? And what is that vision Isaiah 6 prepares us for? It is the vision of the cross. What do we see at the cross? Well, we see something that boggles our minds. 
It was stupendous to see one of the angels who was singing the holy praises of God bring salvation to a sinner. But we see something even greater at the cross because we see the very Holy One of Israel suspended on a tree, cursed, dying for sin. What does the Holy One bring forth out of his holy suffering? He brings forth salvation. And all who look upon this blessed vision of the cross and believe, trusting in the Holy One who is crucified for sinners, hears the word of the angel spoken yet again. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What does holiness do? It, it casts us down. We see ourselves for who we are. We say, woe is me. But holiness is not only a doctrine that casts us down. It is a doctrine that lifts us up and saves us. What does the holy God do? He saves his people from their sins. He pardons their guilt. And he does it through the death of his own holy son for unholy sinners. And so let's trust in this Jesus and hear those blessed words. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we love the words that the seraph spoke to Isaiah. There are no better words to hear than those words. And we are so thankful that you've brought those words to us in Jesus. And so, Father, once again, we entrust ourselves to Jesus, the Holy One of God, who is smitten and stricken for us and our salvation. We trust in Christ. We love Christ. We trust that His blood cleanses us from our sins. We trust that His perfect life is imputed to us. We trust that He has bore up all of our sins on the tree. And we rejoice that we are forgiven we were made right in Christ. Oh, Father, we ask that you would impress this great doctrine on our hearts and minds now. In Jesus' name, amen.